Johann Sebastian Bach wasn't always the legend he is today. Even by the standards of the time, he didn't travel much and wasn't really a celebrity, although his works were fairly well known by fellow musicians and connoisseurs. While Leipzig did have a very respectable university, it was a bit of a sleepy town, and Bach's music was soon thought of as a bit old-fashioned. Much of his work was explicitly for church services and the glory of the Lutheran God. I thought about this recently when watching some filmed solo performances of members of a Canadian orchestra broadcast online. Bach is well represented, with a number of musicians playing his work, both for the instruments he wrote for and many he didn't. When asked about this in an interview, the usually articulate performer struggled a bit to answer. Today, Bach's music seems to flow in the blood of professional musicians. Outside of the practical concerns of public performance, many go back to Bach for personal, musical, and spiritual reasons. For many who lead musical lives, the term Papa Bach refers not to the fact that Johann Sebastian had 20 children, but the notion of Bach as the fount of musical experience. That Johann Sebastian is somehow connected to the elemental force that animates all music. Welcome back to Culture Monster, the podcast that devours the arts. I am your host, Jonathan Gressel. The difference between the out-of-the-way lived experience of Bach and the world-encompassing life his music has had since reminds me of the truth that music can and is made everywhere, not just with the bright lights in the big cities. This was the subtext in my conversation with Claude Lapalme last time. I was lucky to meet someone to explore this theme further. Grant Harville, music director of the Great Falls Symphony Orchestra. Great Falls, Montana is as about as far off the proverbial beaten path as it is possible to get in the lower 48. Yet that doesn't mean it is a community without a need for music. But first, that culture monster bite of the day. If you find yourself in Hamburg, you might visit Miniature Wunderland, an exhibition featuring the world's largest model railroad. But what do you do with all that track when months go by with no visitors? Do you think up another audacious stunt? Or, as Guinness World Records recently put it, Model Train plays record-breaking melody with 2,840 water glasses. Each note played is made by a specially built arm on the train engine striking a glass. 
The pitch of the note is determined by how much water is in the glass. And the rhythm and speed of the notes is determined by how far they are spaced apart next to the more than 200 meters of track. And of course, all of this action was captured to watch on YouTube. See if you can recognize all 20 famous classical tunes. Link is always in the show notes. In an earlier episode, I mentioned the first artwork to be presented not on planet Earth. But these things are subject to interpretation. If you consider song to be art, then extraterrestrial art history began before the fallen astronaut statue, and actually quite near the beginning of the space race. April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first man to enter space and to orbit the Earth. He later told Khrushchev that he sang the tune, The Motherland Hears, The Motherland Knows, a patriotic ditty by Shostakovich, during re-entry. At that point in the mission, he would have been out of radio contact, so this little performance could not have had an audience. As an aside, his landing in the countryside did cause quite a stir. A farmer and her granddaughter, Rita Nerskanova, observed the strange scene of a figure in a bright orange suit with a large white helmet landing near them by parachute. Gagarin later recalled, when they saw me in my spacesuit and the parachute dragging alongside as I walked, they started to back away in fear. I told them, don't be afraid. I am a Soviet citizen like you, who has descended from space, and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. Here's a bit of what the song sounds like. My guest today studied at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Michigan. He has performed as a tubist, vocal tenor, has conducted choirs, orchestras, from student level to professional in a number of places across the USA. We spoke about his musical journey and making music person to person. How do you lead a symphony orchestra in the heart of Montana? Grant Harville joins me now. Thanks so much for joining me. Where did music begin for you? How did how did you start in music? What was your first some of your first memories of music? Yeah, well, my parents were both uh, kind of avocational musicians. My dad was our church choir director. My mother was a voice teacher, and so um, it was always an assumed part of my upbringing in rural Wisconsin, where I uh, was raised. And um, like any red-blooded American child. They forced me to take piano lessons, and I hated every second of it. But I, I am grateful for all of that uh, opportunity. And they encouraged me to play viola and oboe and things like that, uh, and to sing, sing constantly, singing in children's choirs and singing like even with the family and things like that. Uh, 
a little von Trappy in some ways. But it was never really going to be my thing until I got to middle school and I sort of, I joined band and I thought, oh, this will be some sort of side gig kind of thing uh, that I wasn't going to be interested in. And so I said, you know what, I'll play the tuba. That became my thing for about 10 years. It was all I wanted to do, which uh, in some ways really surprised me. And of course, in retrospect, that meant that all of those, all of that upbringing on those other instruments and musical uh, activities from my childhood, I appreciated much more later on than I did at the time. The odd thing is that uh, I never wanted to be a conductor. That was never the goal. I wanted to play tuba. I wanted to write music. Those were my two big things. I made it sort of partway through my undergraduate degree, and I was forced to take a conducting class because they forced all the performance majors to take conducting. Uh, It was one quarter, so not even a full semester, one quarter of conducting. And after about a day of it, it was sort of light bulb epiphany kind of moment. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. All the things that I had liked about music grouped together in one package as a conductor. So I always really liked orchestra music. I always really liked things like music theory, music history. I always liked those classes. You know, so many performance majors, you know, suffer through unwillingly all of that stuff. It was all stuff that I enjoyed. I always liked oral skills. And so all of those different skills you actually get to use as a conductor. And so that it suddenly made a lot of sense uh, in a way that had never occurred to me before. Even playing tuba, actually. When you're a tuba player, you have a certain amount of downtime in rehearsal. And if you have the wrong kind of mentality, that can be fantastically boring. But I never found it so. I always loved watching the conductor and watching what the conductors worked on with the orchestra and listening to the other instruments and things like that. I always found that process really interesting. And yet somehow it never occurred to me that uh, maybe I would actually enjoy the act of conducting until I actually uh, tried it for myself during school. So I had lots of musical support from a young age, but it sort of never occurred to me that conducting was going to be my thing. You know, I was just, we're all just kids from somewhere, right? But I grew up again in a small town in Wisconsin and sort of the world of orchestral conducting as a career was never something that sort of latched onto my brain until much later. Well, I do want to talk about conducting because it is the most mysterious and spooky of the musical arts. How do you go about then becoming a conductor? In in previous episodes of the podcast, we actually talked about this a little bit in the sense that in the old European way of conducting, it's all about the opera and people play the piano for the opera, and then they coach singers, and then they do this so many times that then they might get to conduct a performance here, a performance there, and then you get to be the assistant conductor, and then you get to be uh, you know, the director of the opera house, and then you get moved to a bigger opera house. But of course, in North America, we don't really do that, because in terms of classical music, the symphony is much more in the center of things. So then how, how do you then say, yes, I want to become a professional conductor. Is there any path there? There's not one set one. You know, the uh, opera coach route is a very common one. And it's still, I think, common in the U.S. I think it's, it's a little less common just because in Europe, it seems like every town of more than about 12 people has its own opera house and they're doing 20 productions a year and things like that. And so there's so many more opportunities to, for that to come about. Uh, we don't have that kind of opportunity so much in North America. And so uh, symphonic conductors, yeah, they tend to come up kind of through the orchestral world more. There's a little bit more of a divide between opera and symphony. 
um, which I, I don't think is necessarily a good thing. There are certainly differences between those two worlds culturally, but they have a lot in common too. And I think they sort of inform each other. It's really good for people to be kind of versed in both worlds. It sort of improves my symphonic conducting every time I work in the opera world. And uh, my symphonic training, I think, helps me as an opera conductor as well. The thing you need as a conductor is to convince people you're a conductor. And then they let you stand in front of them. And it's about finding some kind of opportunity, some, some sort of mentor figure that will let you be involved. And for me, I, uh, I threw myself uh, on the mercy of one of my old orchestra conductors who um, was leading a program. He, uh, by no rights, should have offered me a position in his program. I had essentially no conducting experience at that time. But he said, you know, I used to hear you in our auditions when we were doing chair placements and things like that. And I really remember the way you sounded. Sure, come and join the conducting program. And that's where it started. And from then on, it's just about getting as much podium time as you can. Um, you want to make as many mistakes as you can early on. Get those out of your system uh, as much as you can early on. Do those in as low stakes of an environment as you possibly can. And what, what sort of mistakes are those? The rookie, the rookie mistakes. One of the interesting things about being a conductor is that you play the bassoon. Uh, if I play viola or tuba or something like that, and if I have bad technique, I will instantly be informed of my incompetence by the instrument because it will sound bad. The sounds coming from the instrument will sound bad if I'm playing it badly. With conducting, there's a buffer. You can conduct really badly and the orchestra can bail you out. They, they won't do it every time. Uh, eventually, your bad conducting will influence their playing, even though they don't like to admit that. There, there is that disconnect, potentially. It's not a one-to-one -one thing. Sometimes I can conduct really well, and the orchestra will sound bad. And that's just because they're having an off day or something like that. And I can conduct really badly, and as I say, they can bail me out. The more you conduct well, the more likely they are to sound. But again, it's not perfectly correlated. Most conductors, if they're not watching themselves a lot, will be surprised by what they see on video. I can't believe I was moving my hands that way. I thought I was doing this instead. Because you don't get that really honest feedback, uh, you can fall into those traps really easily. I think the other thing, you know, when you're first starting out, the ideal conductor would be a master of about 100 different subjects. Most of us are kind of sort of masters of about five or six. The ideal conductor would play every instrument at a virtuoso level and speak 12 languages, know by memory every single orchestral piece ever written, have you know, a musicologist's knowledge of all the musical styles that you conduct, historian's knowledge of all the social trends that have been going on for the last four centuries. And as I say, most of us don't quite have those things, but you definitely don't have those things the first time you step onto the podium, right? Every rehearsal, you learn something a little bit about instruments you don't play. Every rehearsal, you know, you can offer a rehearsal suggestion and say, you know what, that really, really didn't work. Uh, so I'm not going to use that one again. Simple suggestions of how not to rush or uh, how to tune a chord or something like that. And you realize that the way you're trying to uh, get things to come about doesn't actually work the way you wish they did. As I say, it's good to learn those things in as safe an environment as possible. Ironically, one of the, the, the lowest form of life on the planet is a student conductor because you have no authority really over the fellow musicians, your peers on the one hand. You're also probably 
pretty incompetent, you know, compared to your peers in a lot of ways. You might have only been conducting for a year or two, but all of these people have played their instruments for 15 years. Uh, and hopefully you have enough sort of musical knowledge to kind of bolster, get yourself through that awkward period. You're sort of not quite peers, but you're not quite an authority either. And so you're stuck in this middle ground where it's, it's a, yeah, very awkward conducting adolescence. Well, being a conducting student, yeah, it's so weird because on the one hand, you're trying to learn. You're trying to, in some ways, be sort of humble and change and develop. And you have to change and develop while also being an authority. And, and that's such a difficult thing to pull off uh, in the moment, especially when you have some grumpy guy breathing down your neck. You mentioned the sort of mysterious part of conducting. And I have to say, this is a very unpopular opinion. I don't think conducting is mysterious. I've never found it to be mysterious. There are two things that I think are mysterious about conducting, um, and they're not specific to it. One is that um, how human beings read each other is a bit mysterious, especially in nonverbal communication. But that's true of any kind of nonverbal communication, not just conducting. And then the other part is that music in general is really weird. And I don't think we think about that enough, that we make a bunch of noise for a while and then suddenly people start crying, that it's such a bizarre thing to think about. And so the musical side of it will always be mysterious. Um, in terms of the actual act of conducting, I think it's much simpler than people make it out to be. Would you say that's true even in the idea of physical gestures? Yeah, absolutely. And not because everybody looks the same or everybody should look the same. If this is your sort of spectrum of what you might call good conducting on the uh, stick waving side of things, again, those can all look really different. But the one thing they have in common is that they match the energy of the ensemble. And that can be everything, even as simple as giving a good prep. They're showing an up-down or an in-out. That's something that matches the kind of in-out or up-down that the players are going to want to use when they come in. The players will catch that pretty easily. As long as your body language maps on to the body language that uh, the musicians want to use to be the best musicians they can be, then that conducting will work. All the other stuff, all the differences, that's just different body types and things like that. That's uh, different trainings and things like that. But at that core, matching the, uh, um, again, I use the word energy, matching the energy of the ensemble is what successful stick waving is all about. Uh, stick waving is the part of conducting we see. What is the part of conducting we don't see? Well, certainly uh, being a music director, of course, is off the podium the vast majority of the time. That's about being a CEO. You're, you're running uh, an organization. You have employees that are, have salaries whose checks you don't want to bounce. You have um, clients in the forms of audience members. Now, not every conductor is a music director. And vice versa, especially in opera, music directors often aren't, uh, or artistic directors aren't necessarily the conductors of those opera performances. But, you know, the preparation that goes into getting up uh, onto the podium before you wave your arms musically, basically the way I describe the process, and every conductor does this differently, is your job is to take visual information, the score, and turn it into sonic information. So you want that visual image to become a sonic image. And uh, again, every conductor use, does this differently. A lot of conductors will play things at the piano until that sonic image embeds itself in their brains. I prefer just to have the score in front of me. I try to hear with my eyes, essentially, and to hear it as accurately as possible. 
And once you have that sonic image, in a lot of ways, the interpretation part, the decisions tend to take care of themselves. You'll find that melodies feel like they want to go at certain tempos. You know, the ritardando that feels good there will feel that good because the sonic image is strong, not because you reasoned your way to it. And once that sonic image is strong, you know, to get back to the stick waving part, the energy of the music guides the energy that you show. And if that energy matches, again, what the musicians need or want to do to be, again, the best musicians they can be, then it's really easy uh, to connect with them. Uh, the place you get disconnected is if you're using an inner energy that is not appropriate for the musicians. And uh, so they watch you, and then they have to make a decision. Do I do what this conductor is showing, even though every molecule of my body doesn't want me to do that? Or do I uh, put up this sort of filter? Okay, these are the things that the conductor is doing that I can take. At the same time, I have to sort of have my other foot on the brakes with regard to this other stuff. And um, good musicians can do that. They can sort of divide their minds in that way, but it's exhausting. And it, um, it takes a lot of effort. And eventually most musicians, again, they don't like to admit that conductors can make them play badly, but eventually um, they will fail the, every now and then. It's just, it's, it's too hard to keep that up all the time. And so they'll, they'll make that mistake of using the kind of energy the conductor is showing, even though it's not the appropriate one for the music. It goes back to something I said a few minutes ago in terms of if this is your spectrum of good conducting technique, what they have in common is matching the energy. And I think that's what players tend to read more than they even realize, um, which is why um, different conductors can come in and work with a group that they haven't worked with before and connect relatively easily. Humans, again, I'm talking stick technique here. Humans have an unbelievable ability um, to be what we call empathetic, to, to match the people around us, uh, to do what the people around us are doing. It, it's really hard to resist that, as a matter of fact. So that kind of connection, if you have a strong musical sense of the piece, and if your technique um, matches that musical sense, uh, it's not so hard, I think, to connect with an orchestra relatively easily in that regard. Now, orchestras have different cultures in terms of some of the more practical stuff, uh, how they like to rehearse and things like that. And in that case, um, you do have to say, you know, am I getting stink eye? Um, am I imagining stink eye when there isn't none, when there isn't any, uh, things like that. Um, and, you know, musicians can be jerks to conductors all the time, but that's, that comes with the territory. You, you know, we get paid more. So we deal with musicians being jerks. That's, that's, that's the, uh, the bargain, uh, that we, uh, that's the deal that we make. When you feel the energy start to flag, you ask why that's happening. Do I need to move on to a different section? Do I need to do a run through now? Um, are they upset because this particular passage isn't working well? Can I find a make find a way to make that passage work well? And uh, musicians, they're they're smart. You know, if um, if something's not going well, they'll know. And if you're a good conductor, you'll recognize that they know. And it's your job to uh, to uh, find your way to that point to to find a way to solve that. One sort of minor technical point that I am curious about is that often in Europe, shall we say, or in the large, more European-styled orchestras in uh, in North America, 
when the conductor is making gestures, the orchestra is playing a bit behind. Several seconds later. (laughs) There is another way of playing, you know, especially the band way, where people play exactly on the downbeat. I mean, do you find it strange if if you're waving your arms and people are way behind you or or do you expect it? Here's the the thing about that. I've never conducted an orchestra that always played behind. They do exist. I have either conducted or seen orchestras that will play behind depending on the conductor. I I sing, as I mentioned uh, a while ago. So I've been a member of lots of symphony choruses. I've been uh, conducted by different conductors as part of the same ensemble. And in some cases, one conductor would conduct with the group and another conductor would would conduct uh, ahead. And it was not um, a question of the group. It was a question of the conductor. Obviously, the group could go either way. I have my theory about why that happens. There are certainly a lot of justifications uh, for conducting ahead of the group. Some people say simply, you know, they'll never be able to read it in time, right? Um, Which I don't agree with. Put it in your prep beat. That seems like a decent way to solve that. Other people talk about it in terms of tempo. They conduct with the group in fast music uh, ahead of the group in slow music. That maybe feels a little bit better to me, uh, especially if you're showing something with lots of line. I think, honestly, most of the time when an orchestra is playing behind the conductor, it's because the conductor is conducting badly. I think we use it as an excuse. They can't read us. So as a safety mechanism, they wait and then they play with each other. As conductors, we get used to that and we turn it into a virtue. Uh, We make some kind of justification. Again, there are many of them. But what's weird to me about that is that it doesn't happen in chamber groups, right? Uh, when the first violin gives the note of the quartet, they, they might it might look a little bit different in different groups, but they're all going to play that first note at the same time. It's not that it's not that the first violin and then plays. They don't lift, go, stop, play, right? They're perf- and they, it's not that they suddenly sound terrible. No, they sound awful because they played together. No, of course not. They're able to do it in groups where the conductor is also playing as part of the group. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's that disconnect between what we do and the sound that comes out. Potentially, there's this human filter in between it, where there's another human who also has to make a decision based on our technique. If we stood up and gave a prep beat that also had to literally play the violin, we would have to give that prep beat in a good way in order to sound good on the violin. If I were to stand up and give you a prep beat as a wind player, I would do this. I would inhale and play. And it would be the easiest thing for you to follow as a member of a wind quintet or something like that, right? You're someone who's showing your flute player or clarinet, whoever brings you in in a wind quintet, they're not going to inhale, stop, screw you up, and then play, right? Because no one would ever follow that. And I think as conductors, there's more of that unpredictability potentially that can come into your technique. And as I say, orchestras then have to go into survival mode. None of us know when this note is. We have to wait and play it together. Well, there's a hot take, I guess. Uh, Maybe I'll get you to give another one. Conducting without a score, is that a stunt or no? It is not. Conducting without a score is fantastic. I'll I'll put it this way. It can be a stunt, but I love conducting without a score. The, The issue is this. As you practice, and I talked about this, you're turning visual information into sonic information. There's a point where you can get with memorization where you are only thinking about the memory part of it. 
that's where all your focus is. At that point, it's not exactly a stunt, but it's not a lot of fun and you're not conducting well, probably. There's another point after that where it's less that it's memorized and it's more that it feels like there's no other way the music could possibly go. I use the example of happy birthday, right? Nobody ever forgets how happy birthday goes, right? It's such a sort of part of your being that you don't have to focus on, okay, what's the next line? What's the next note? What's the next line? Things like that. And if you can get to that point with a symphony, it feels so good because you just, you know what the next thing is. It's just there. It's because it's so much of a part of, uh, so much a part of you. And at that point, it's just incredibly liberating. The score, I mean, you could have it on the stand if you want, but at that point, it's just fun with page turning. It's not actually contributing to the music in any way. If I can conduct with a score, I, I don't do it all the time, but when I can, yeah, I love to. It, it feels really good. I do want to uh, talk about your current job, but first, let's say, uh, I mean, you got a degree in conducting. How do you go from having a degree in conducting to actual conducting jobs? Conducting more even than other musical fields, and this is true of all musical areas, it really does depend on your connections. Because I think it's so hard to evaluate conductors in a lot of ways. And especially since the people who do evaluate conductors aren't necessarily musicians, they're almost never conductors themselves in some ways. Like executive directors are the ones who hire conductors a lot of the time, right? I think there's a lot of kind of insecurity about whether someone could be a successful conductor or not. And so they rely a lot on people vouching for you. They rely a lot on previous positions that you've held. They say, okay, I don't know if this person is good or not, but they were successful at a job that is similar to ours. And that means we can give them a chance. Or the last person we took from this conducting program did really well for us. So I'll trust this recommend, recommender who put this program together to make another good recommendation for us. It, so that's a huge part of it. You know, my uh, first job out of school I got because my conducting teacher recommended me to be an assistant on a summer Gilbert and Sullivan show. The music director for that show, a couple of years later, invited me to be his assistant at the symphony he conducted. And I think that's a pretty standard kind of narrative for conducting careers. It seems like, well, I think this is definitely true in the 20th century, that the idea of the best conductors are foreigners and we need to import conductors all the time and we don't have any here. Do you still think that's a problem today? That, that's an interesting notion. I think for North Americans, there is still something, there's that je ne sais quoi, that, that something, if you say you've been to Europe or studied in Europe, or if you have an accent, people will see you a little bit differently, right? I don't get any benefit from this. As I say, I'm, I'm from farm country in the Midwest, right? I, I, get, I get no uh, cachet from my, uh, from my origin story. I do think there's something there. I, it's probably a little bit different between the US and Canada as well. I've noticed that there does seem to be some effort in Canada to highlight Canadian musicians as sort of a positive thing. Like you'll see it in programs. Sometimes there'll be a little maple leaf or something like that next to names of Canadian artists. There's less of that in the U.S. Certainly, if you look at like the top 25 orchestras or so by budget size and the nationality of their conductors, you will find very, very few Americans. So virtually all of them are uh, 
yeah, not not American by birth. I think part of that is that, you know, for the largest American orchestras, they can pay their conductors a ton. And so that means you get essentially an international field. And so while I don't think that having an American or North American upbringing uh, is inherently bad, I don't think being European automatically gives you insight into something just by virtue of having been born in a certain place. But if your pool is an international pool, just the, the way the math works out, you're going to get a lot of conductors from a lot of different places. You wouldn't expect all 25 of the biggest American orchestras to have American conductors. But I, I do think there is something to that. There are certain people in places of power who just trust somebody with an accent as a conductor. If you've breathed that Viennese air for 40 years, you're going to understand Schubert better than someone who hasn't, that kind of thing. There's, there's still a little bit of that attitude. Well, this leads me a, a little bit into your current job. Do you think that what you are doing is different than what the music director of the Boston Symphony or even the St. Louis Symphony would be doing, making music in Montana? Well, certain principles are the same, right? Um, if there's an intonation problem, I want to fix it. And that's going to be true no matter where we are. What, there are a few things that you notice that are different. One is that you realize very, very quickly that if you are not in a major urban center, nobody's going to care, right? <laughs> that, that nobody's going to be paying attention. And that's actually in some ways kind of liberating, right? I don't program for Twitter, right? I program for the community where I am. And 20% of Americans are on Twitter. That means 80% aren't. And so, um, and I have to sort of keep that in mind that it's, I'm programming for our Great Falls audiences, for our Great Falls musicians. And I have to sort of uh, remember that. I think the biggest thing that's interesting about Great Falls, it, I don't know how much time you spent in Montana. It's a little bit like Alberta in that, even though it's smaller by population, there it has these sort of islands. You know, you'll have a city, uh, the biggest city in Montana is uh, Billings. It has about 110,000 people in it. Uh, Great Falls has about 60,000 people. So it's about 120th the size of Calgary. But these are still, for my, by Montana standards, major population centers. They're really on islands. Once you get outside of them, it's mostly empty space. What happens is that these communities become sort of self-sufficient in a way that you don't get in sort of suburban sprawl areas. Our orchestra, even though we serve a relatively small population, we're actually larger by budget size than a lot of people I think would believe because we have to do things internally, because if it's going to happen, we have to make it happen. We have to bring in musicians, which means we have to pay salaries in some cases, which are higher than people might expect, because we have to get them to move to Great Falls, which might be 2,000 miles away from, from home. That challenge is really interesting. You know, we're taking from a, just a very small pool of human beings, which means we have to really, really support the development of our own musicians. If we have a problem with a musician, if they're not playing well, if there's an interpersonal dynamic that's not working out, the first thing we have to consider is how can we make it work with this person, not how can we fire this person and bring someone else in. Every now and then it comes to that. Again, uh, you know, I say this sometimes is we don't really have a B team. You know, we have, we have a great orchestra and I love them. But once you uh, get past some of the musicians, you know, if we have too many absences or something like that, it takes a lot of work and we have to go um, some pretty far distances. I mean, we bring people in from eight to 10 hours away sometimes to fill some of these chairs. Again, because of that, uh, it's really important that we invest kind of locally. 
the huge advantage to being in a place like Great Falls is that we don't have to pretend to create community around the orchestra. It's there. Again, we're on an island. Great Falls is the most isolated city for its size in the 48 contiguous United States. Nobody has to pretend that the city limits are the city limits. We all understand that we are on this island together. And so when we say that we're serving Great Falls, when we say something about belonging to the city, that sense of community is really strong. And I think it it surprises people who don't necessarily understand just how strong the orchestra culture can be in, in a place like Montana. I don't claim that we're unique in that way. You know, there are basically seven orchestras in Montana, and I'm sure they'd all say the same thing. It's easier to create that sense of community. It's easier to, to go out and say, we serve you, than it might be in a place with 10 times as many people, but it's more diffuse and it's less defined as a community. So if you do a project which is successful, you immediately know that this is connecting with people. Yeah. And as I say, we won't get any press, right? Especially with sort of the well-known kind of demise of local media, right? Believe it or not, the Great Falls Tribune does not have an arts critic. We're not going to get reviews. We're not going to do those sorts of things. So again, it really puts your focus on the people who are standing right in front of you. And if you have a really good, successful program, it feels really, it feels really nice. And, and it can mean a bunch of different things. You know, I've had that experience with Mozart and Haydn concerts, which really connected, you know, somehow that alchemy happened. But we also had our, our last program of this last season. We had a, um, a Montana-based Native American hip-hop artist who came and performed with a symphony. And that really connected with the audience in a different way. And when you feel that energy, uh, when you feel that work, it's usually pretty obvious. So, I mean, you mentioned that, yes, you program, you know, with the musicians in mind, with a particular audience in mind. What, I mean, what does that look like? What is, I mean, your philosophy of, of picking works for, for the concerts that you have? A couple sort of assumptions that I make. One is that being in a relatively small town, if our audiences hear classical music live, it will probably be us. We are the ones who are going to be playing it. There's not a symphony 20 minutes down the road, 20 minutes down the road that they'll also go and hear. That means that um, variety is really important. I don't want us to ever be kind of a specialist orchestra. We're not going to be the Baroque orchestra or a new music orchestra. I really want to get... Uh, as much of the full spectrum of orchestra music of the last, you know, 400 years or so uh, into our programming. I also want to assume that when someone comes to our concert, they may have never heard this music before. All the music that I choose needs to at least have the possibility of connecting with a, um, an audience member on first hearing. That means not a lot of Elliot Carter showing up on our programs, for example, as much as not bad music. But I know for most of our audiences, they'll need 10 listens of that before it sinks in. And most of them haven't had those previous nine to get to that 10th one. That's true in bigger cities, too. That's not a Great Falls specific situation. It's just that in bigger cities, the Elliott Carter fan club might have a few more people that you know, is enough to, to fill that hall on that particular night. So those are the main sort of two considerations. And then I do think about our orchestra. What's going to show our strengths on the one hand, and what's going to help us develop on the other hand. With those few things in mind, yeah, we put the season together. I mean, you talked about how the culture, uh, symphony culture is strong in the town. The symphony is an important part of the community. 
I mean, sometime your tenure will come to an end. How will you know that that bond has been strengthened? There's certainly, you know, the measurable things. How are our subscriptions doing? Are we able to, at the very least, keep up with things like cost of living, increases for our salaries? I've always felt that the thing that always makes the most sense to me are the connections as they happen. You know, I mentioned before the sort of the energy that you get back from the audience. Are those moments happening a lot? Um, Are you getting them on a regular basis? If those are happening, say, at least as often and hopefully more and more often, then I I think that'll be true. The musical excellence part is very important to me too. Uh, Do we sound good? And I know that's not an especially easy thing to measure, but that's really important to me. I want to feel like we can be proud of our artistic product as well. And of course, it's much easier to connect with an audience when they're uh, enjoying the crap out of the music. It's not about a performance being sort of perfect necessarily. It's the performance being good enough to move an audience. A conductor has to look deeply into the music and find uh, all the parts that makes it work. Is that why you're interested in, in composing too? The composing part came first for me. The desire to understand how music works, which I will not claim I understand. I'm not sure anybody does. Is something that manifested itself for me really early on. After that, I realized that if I were a conductor, I'd get to explore this all the time. So that made the, that kind of job really appealing to me. In the process of study, you want to make sure that you're separating learning the music from learning about the music. I want to learn the notes. I want to learn the actual notes. I want to learn the sound. I want to explore that as much as I possibly can. Learning about the music is really important. It helps with your pre-concert talk, and it can certainly color some of the stuff that's in the notes as well. It's really easy to fall into this sort of the sort of musicologist trap where you know you're reading about what everybody ate for lunch, and then you forget to realize that that's actually a G minor chord. You know, the, you, you want to make sure that the notes are staying at kind of the forefront. The sound of the music is uh, staying at the forefront. As I say, I'm always someone who loved my music theory classes. I think that is another trap that conductors can fall into where they base interpretations on some cool theoretical notion that they have about the piece and not on the way the notes actually sound. So they're like, well, this theme happens here and then it happens here. I want to make sure that connection is really obvious. So even though it's marked piano, I haven't played fortissimo or something like that, right? If that connection is there, it'll be there, right? You don't, you, you don't have to destroy the music in order to bring that kind of thing, thing out. And you can sort of fall in love with your theoretical analysis in a way, in a way that I think it's important to avoid. But you're, you're absolutely right uh, in that, yes, you have to go deeply into the music. And for me, that means going deeply into the way the music sounds. It's time for recommendations. So if there are some orchestra pieces that you think listeners should jump into, also separately, if you have any recent pieces that you would want to share with people. Orchestra pieces I really like that don't get played a ton. I'll, I'll start with... Um, which is probably maybe the most famous one on that particular list, which is Catraturian's Second Symphony, the Bell Symphony. It's one that I played in youth orchestra my freshman year of high school, and I, I just adored it from the very beginning. It's a little bit bombastic and over the top, and the last movement sounds like John Williams a touch, and it's just glorious. If you want to have a good time with some really sort of angsty Soviet-Armenian stuff, that's a, a good choice. 
Another symphony that I like quite a bit is the Symphony in G by uh, August de Beck, Belgian-Flemish uh, composer, uh, late 1900s. I've always felt that that was one that deserved a little bit more attention. One of my favorite weird musical factoids, between Haydn's 100th Symphony in 1794 and Dvorak's 8th Symphony in 1889, there is not a single symphony by a major composer written in the key of G major. So that's almost a century where people were avoiding G major as a symphonic key like the plague. There are a few qualifications to that. Uh, you know, Louis Spohr, if you consider Louis Spohr a major composer, uh, he wrote in G major. Berlioz's Herald in Italy is sort of an unholy hybrid of symphony, concerto, and tone poem, and that's in G major. But for again, for almost a full century, there's no G major symphonies. It way beyond what you would expect, just sort of by random chance. I'm always fascinated by the music that is in G major. Like, why is this happening, and what's going on with that? And Usually people have sort of pastoral, sunny, sort of lyric, pretty associations with that key. In any case, uh, August de Beck's uh, G major symphony is one of those rare exceptions. Exceptions. It's a little bit after the Dvorak, so it doesn't quite fall into that window. No, the great G major, Darth. Uh, I think you've caught the culture monster zeitgeist perfectly with that little uh, tidbit. Here's another factoid. I know this is a little bit off topic. That is even more irrelevant. But it's my favorite weird coincidence in the classical music world. Does the date December 22nd, 1808 mean anything to you? Um, is this the great, the great Beethoven extravaganza? Yes, uh, it, one of a couple, but yeah, it's the one that most people know. It's the, the day when he premiered the Fifth Symphony, the Sixth Symphony, Piano Concerto Number 4, I think, the Choral Fantasy. Did some improvising, did some music from the Mass and C, and giant sort of three or four hour long uh, blowout that probably wasn't that well attended. Certainly it wasn't well rehearsed. The, you know, the ink was literally still wet on the choral fantasy uh, music. And he couldn't find musicians because it was Christmas time. And to this day, Christmas time is when uh, it's hard to find musicians. Anyway, that great concert is 50 years to the day before the birth date of Giacomo Puccini who was born on December 22nd, 1858. And the significance of that, nothing. No significance to that whatsoever. It does not matter in any way whatsoever. But I just think it's delightful that it is exactly to the day, 50 years between that Beethoven concert and Puccini's birth. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, so <laughs> there's your meaningless classical music nonsense uh, for this particular podcast. I'll mention... She's gotten a little bit more visibility, I think, with efforts at inclusivity that have been happening in the last uh, year or two. But I think Julia Perry is a fantastic composer. She died, I think, uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, her, her most famous piece, I think, just because it's easier to program, is called Sir, a Short Piece for Orchestra. It works as a really nice opener. Um, it's got some crunchy good stuff that makes it a product of its time, but it's also really energetic and fun. But she's written some, some really great string music, a, uh, a Stavot Mater, which is really beautiful. And she's actually written something like 14 symphonies, which are really hard to find. She was having health problems, so the scores aren't necessarily in good shape. And I keep hoping that someone's going to take on that project, uh, sort of editing those and seeing if they can come out, because I'm sure there's uh, some great music in there. 
And then I'll also mention just, I, I happened to catch uh, a year or two ago, a piece by uh, the composer Andrew Norman called Play, a living composer, young, youngish, when the Detroit Symphony heard it. And that I think was one of the best sort of new pieces that I've heard in a long time for orchestra. So uh, if you have a way of checking out uh, the Andrew Norman Play piece, uh, I would recommend doing that. All of those choices are fascinating. Grant Harville, music director of the Great Falls Symphony Orchestra, Great Falls, Montana. Thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks again to Grant Harville for sharing his time with me. As always, lots of links in the show notes, including links to a number of the pieces that Maestro Harville mentioned. Remember, you can support the podcast and find bonus content at buymeacoffee.com slash culturemonster. Next time, you can hear both a conversation with and a special saxophone performance by Dr. Jeremy Brown. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>